I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. In his book, A Secular Age, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor traces changes in religious belief from the late Middle Ages to the present. Taking the year 1500 as a baseline, he argues that at that time, belief in God was a given, something obvious and unquestionable. Today, religious belief is, in his words, optional, a choice made in the face of a bewildering variety of possibilities. In between lies a journey through doubt, a journey made by an entire civilization, but also by each individual who opts for some religious conviction. Roger Lundin's book, Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in a Secular Age, follows this journey as it has unfolded in modern literature. Lundin is a literary scholar and a professor at Wheaton College in Chicago. Today on Ideas, his thoughts will conclude our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Here to introduce him is Ideas producer, David Cayley. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, writing in the middle years of the 17th century, made what would become a classic statement of the homelessness of the modern mind. I see the terrifying spaces of the universe that enclose me, he wrote, and I find myself attached to a corner of this vast expanse without knowing why I am more in this place than in another, nor why this little time that is given me to live is assigned me at this point more than another, out of all the eternity that has preceded me and out of all that will follow me. More than 300 years later, in the last years of the 20th century, the Polish poet and essayist Czesław Miłosz could write, It is simply impossible for me to form a spatial conception of heaven and hell. But the imagination can function only spatially. Without space, the imagination is like a child who wants to build a palace, but has no blocks. Both these statements, bookending the modern era, refer to what Charles Taylor calls our time's conditions of belief, the cosmological and psychological background against which our views are formed. Lots of people today uphold and practice a religious faith, but they do so in the face of inescapable challenges to that faith. They know about Pascal's terrifying spaces, vast, empty, inhospitable, with no echo of our little human conceits. They know that there are others who profess different, incompatible creeds, which runs them up against the question of why one should be more true than another. They see more and more of the power once assigned to God taken into human hands. So whoever believes today believes in the face of doubt, hopes, as St. Paul said, against hope. The prevalence of fundamentalism might seem to argue otherwise, but even in that case, one wonders if it isn't perhaps doubt that has driven people to retrench on such impregnable and well-fortified positions in the first place. Roger Lundin's Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in a Secular Age, deals with the resonances and repercussions of this modern situation in literature. During the 19th century, the great Christian narrative of the fall, redemption, and restoration of humankind began to feel implausible to many writers. Scholarly critics picked apart the Bible and laid bare its all-too-human origins. Science revealed the natural history of humankind. Secular utopias displaced the kingdom of God in the imaginings of reformers. Lundin's book traces the way in which poets and novelists registered the resulting crisis of faith. Roger Lundin spoke with me recently from a radio studio at Wheaton College in Chicago, where he teaches English. He told me first that believing again has one of its roots in something that happened to him when he was growing up in a working-class neighborhood in a small city in Illinois 
during the 1960s. Our family then was visited by a, a real devastation, tragedy, you could call it. When my only brother died a month short of his 19th birthday, a week after what should have been routine surgery, but there were complications, and one thing led to another, and he died in the middle of the night in my mother's arms in the hospital, and things were never the same. There were three of us left in the family, my father, my mother, my, and I, and I began at the age of 15 a four or five years search that eventually brought me to the Christian faith. Roger Lundeen writes today as a Christian, but as a Christian forever marked by the hopelessness that enclosed him in the years after his brother's death. What set him on the path that eventually led to Christian faith was his experience of literature. Only high school English classes, he writes, offered any sustenance for my famished spirit. There he found an echo of his concerns, a representation of how the world looked to him, an answering voice. At the very beginning of my book, I, I quote Ralph Waldo Emerson in, in Self-Reliance. There's a sentence that's always enchanted me. Emerson says, in every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. And I describe in the book how the first work of literature that ever grabbed me was Jack London's To Build a Fire. I read it on a, a single bus ride in, in my hometown of Rockford, Illinois. And when I read it and read that story of a, of a man lost in the Yukon wilderness who tries repeatedly and ultimately unsuccessfully to build a fire and to survive, I felt, well, there's life as I know it, cold, brutal, deeply marked by irony, and deeply bound for inevitable failure. And it seemed to me that Jack London had, in some sense, taken my life and articulated the meaning of it and given it back to me. And the work had such power for me because it seemed to contain my own thoughts, but offered to me in a way that grabbed my attention and focused my thinking. The authors Roger Lundeen was reading, in addition to Jack London, were mainly novelists of the late 19th and early 20th century, contemporaries of London who also dramatized nature's indifference to humanity. The English novelist Thomas Hardy would be an example. These novels reflected Lundin's sense of the absence of God. I could not find anything personal in the force that, that seemed to rule this universe, and these novels more or less confirmed it because the, the naturalistic vision that, that informs all of them was the thing I had picked up basically on my own. They seemed to confirm what, what seemed to be second nature to me. There's a poem by Czesław Miłosz, the wonderful uh, Polish poet who died in 2004, that he wrote late in life. It's called Either Or, and it, it's actually an examination of the, the meaning of of the Christian faith, it's, whether it's true or not true. And in the second stanza, Miwo says, if what is proclaimed by Christianity is a fiction and what we are taught in schools and newspapers and TV is true, that the evolution of life is an accident, as is an accident the existence of man, and that is history goes from nowhere to nowhere, our duty is to draw conclusions. And he goes on from that, what conclusions we are to draw. And that really seemed to me, when I read it maybe 10 years ago, to sum up nicely what my experience had been as an adolescent. What I had been taught in schools and in newspapers and TV was that the evolution of life was an accident. And so was my existence. And history goes from nowhere to nowhere. And I had to draw conclusions. And that's what I was doing as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, drawing conclusions. And the, the, the content of the novels seemed to confirm the conclusions I was drawing on my own. There's a scene in Tess of the D'Urbervilles where Tess confesses everything to Angel Claire, and she hopes by doing so that everything will be made right. And she slips the letter under his door, and nothing does go right, and he doesn't acknowledge having received the letter. And in that tragic novel, everything, in a sense, flows out of that situation. She only found out later that when she slipped the letter under the door, it also went under the rug 
in his room, so he never read it. And I thought, that really is the way life is. <laughs> Roger Lundeen, as he said at the outset, eventually came through this dark passage in his life. But when he became a Christian, he did so very much as someone who believes again, as the title of his book has it. This expression, believing again, is strongly associated with the 20th century English poet W.H. Auden, but Auden borrowed it from an earlier source. Auden quotes the 18th century German aphorist G.C. Lichtenberg, who said, there's a great difference between believing something still and believing it again. And, and Auden does that in several places in order to indicate that in the modern world, to believe in, let's say, the Christian faith and to appropriate it is to reaffirm something that has had deep challenges made to it structurally in, in the history of culture and the history of religion, and also very often for a person, it has had uh, a faith that has had deep challenges made to it in one's personal life. So to believe again means to be aware of the sense of disruption and the sense of critical detachment and, and cr sometimes crisis and sometimes even loss that are so much a part of the affirmation of belief in the modern world. So many of the great writers of the 20th century took an approach something like this to what it meant to believe religiously in the modern world. Very early on in my academic training, I read Paul Ricoeur's The Symbolism of Evil. And in the final chapter of that book, Ricoeur eloquently speaks about his desire, his desire personally, but in a sense he says our corporate desire to hear again, to have a what he calls a second naivete, an affirmation of belief that takes into account the sense of disruption and deep divisions that are so much a part of the religious experience of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And, and one of the elements of believing, again, involves realizing that just as belief has become a possibility to you and a, and a reaffirmation for you, unbelief remains a possibility. You live with the awareness of the fact that you have affirmed something, and in affirming it, you know of the possibility of your rejecting it. And, and, and I, th I think that's one of the distinctive elements of belief in modernity. It's not the experience of everybody, but I know it's been my experience, and it's been the experience of many people I've read, and also of many friends I've had and many students I've taught. Modern believers says Roger Lundeen, are usually conscious of exercising a choice, of believing what they might, or formerly did, disbelieve. This is not something entirely new. The first Christians also made such a choice. Lacking social standing or power, they had to make a deliberate and sometimes dangerous decision to confess a faith that scandalized many of their contemporaries. But as Christianity became established, it became an identity that just went with the territory. One no longer had to choose it. In fact, it was now dangerous to disavow it. The Protestant Reformation reintroduced the element of choice, as W. H. Auden emphasizes in the essay in which he introduces the idea of believing again. Auden examines the, the significance of the fact that in medieval Catholicism, the model for the Christian faith was biological. To paraphrase him, in medieval Catholicism, you became a Christian by virtue of having been born from your mother's womb. Protestantism shifts the model for faith to a psychological basis. And as Auden says, you, you become a Christian by virtue of having struggled against your father's will. Protestantism places within the dynamic of faith the need for affirmation and the need for a distinct appropriation of one's parents' religious beliefs or one's heritage, a, a need for a, a narrative of conversion 
in, in appropriation. Protestants, according to Roger Lundeen, often demanded that faith be renewed in every generation, a point that has also been emphasized by Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor in his book Sources of the Self and A Secular Age. Taylor has been one of Lundin's inspirations and is frequently cited in Believing Again. He highlights the Reformation's demand that the embedded, ritualized, cultural Christianity of the Middle Ages give way to a religion in which a conscious commitment is required of every individual. And this view was particularly strong, Charles Taylor has written, among the Puritans who revolutionized England and settled America. In Sources of the Self, Taylor refers early in the book to the Puritan tradition or practice of leaving home, he calls it, that would, that within the first 10 or 20 years of the Massachusetts and Connecticut colonies, the Puritans felt they had to adopt. And it was a practice of, of requiring children to effectively to leave their religious home to go into the psychological far country, so to speak, and then to return and make their parents' faith their own. That, that was, for those early New England settlers, one of the, the real difficulties. How do they pass on to their children a religious belief system and personal faith that they hold in very high esteem and, and that centers their life, but th that can only be transmitted if the recipient seizes it and, and makes it his or her own? And in Puritan terms, it can only be appropriated if that, that individual has a, a sure and certain knowledge of the love of God in Jesus Christ that can be articulated in a narrative of conversion. And only with, with that narrative of conversion could you then get full members, receive full membership and privileges in the church, which involved at the center of the church life the taking of the Lord's Supper. So they a very complex thing in the 17th century those Puritans were working out. And it so much had to do with the need to have an affirmation that comes after a period of disruption. And that disruption central to the experience. But once you've made the affirmation, you always know that it could be otherwise. The practice of leaving home and returning renewed developed amongst a devout people who felt they had been singled out and chosen by God. In a sermon delivered in 1630, John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony predicted that God would so favor their settlement that, in his words, men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people upon us. These words have reverberated through the rhetoric of American presidents. But when Christian faith began to fade, this sense of having been God's chosen ones made the resulting religious crisis all the more acute. In Believing Again, Roger Lundin takes up the case of novelist Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, whose life between 1819 and 1891 spanned most of the 19th century. Melville was baptized in the Reformed Church, but gradually gave up the tradition in which he was raised. Under the influence of new critical studies of the Bible, he was forced to the conclusion, in the words of his biographer, Andrew Del Banco, that the Bible was a collection of improbable fictions. But he came to this conclusion reluctantly, cursing the biblical scholars who, he said, had robbed us of the bloom. He never stopped wrestling with his religious inheritance, Lundin says, but it no longer nourished him. He didn't find anything there that could convince him and comfort him in a way that he could accept or be at home in, and he he was a seeker. He was a profoundly desperate seeker in his 30s. His greatest novel, Moby Dick, comes, I think, straight out of that experience of deep seeking and struggle. 
And, and in Moby Dick, I realize he's struggling with many of the same things that I was struggling with as a young man. He's struggling with a fear that the world is either ruled by a cruel and vindictive force behind all things, or it is ruled by nothing at all. When he speaks of the white whale, he says, be that whale principal or agent, he'll wreak his hate upon it. And by that he means whether Moby Dick is simply himself, a random and wanton source of evil in the world, wreaking havoc upon boats, killing men right and left, or Moby Dick is an agent for some hidden god. Either way, Melville is going to seek his vengeance upon this beast to strike back at God or at whatever force it is that has hit him so hard, and, and he thinks unjustly. And I think that in the struggle of Ahab with Moby Dick and the struggle of Ahab with God and the blankness of things, there's so much of the 19th century represented brilliantly. Melville was, I'd call him a prophetic writer. He, so much of what the 20th century looks like, I think Melville saw in the middle of the 19th century. But he still kept seeking, kept seeking so eagerly. In the middle part of the 1850s, his father-in-law, who was the chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, funded a trip that Melville took to the Holy Lands. And Melville's trip was prompted by a seeming desire on his part to find some affirmation for the faith, some grounds for belief by going back to the holy sites of Judaism and Christianity. He ended up finding nothing. He wrote in his journals in several places about the blankness of things, about the, the absolutely disenchanting nature of coming to these holy sites. And I'd have to say that for the last 30 years of his life or so, he resigned himself to a stoic quiet, a fatalism of sorts, a fatal resignation. On that trip to the Holy Lands, he stopped in England and saw for the last time his, his friend, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne was serving as a, a government representative at the consulate in Liverpool. And they went out on the Irish Sea one day and walked among the sand dunes and had a conversation. And this was their last meeting. And Hawthorne gave a famous description of what that conversation was like. He said that Melville spoke of providence and futurity and of everything that lies beyond human ken. This was typical for Melville. And he, and he said, he, he, Hawthorne reported that Melville had told him he had, quote, pretty much made up his mind to be annihilated, which I always find rather darkly humorous. <laughs> you know, that, that, that Melville made his choice about what would happen to him at death, and he thought, well, of all the options, I'll take annihilation. But uh, uh, Hawthorne wrote, still... He does not seem to rest in that anticipation, and I think will never rest until he gets hold of a definite belief. It is strange how he persists and has persisted ever since I knew him, and probably long before in wandering to and fro over these deserts, as dismal and monotonous as the sand hills amid which we were sitting. He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief, and he is too honest and courageous not to try to do one. Or the other. That restlessness and the uncertainty, so much a mark of Melville, and soon to become so much a mark of the religious life of a growing number of men and women. You're listening to Ideas in Canada on CBC Radio 1 across North America on Sirius Satellite 159 and around the world on cbc.ca. Today's program is the final episode in our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. It's presented by David Cayley. Herman Melville according to his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne, could neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief. Melville's contemporary, the poet 
Emily Dickinson, lived a very different life. He was an adventurous traveler, she a recluse who rarely left her hometown of Amherst, Massachusetts. But she found herself caught, nevertheless, in a very similar situation, suspended between belief and unbelief. The Bible, she came to think, was no more than an antique volume written by faded men at the suggestion of holy specters. And yet her poems remain haunted by God's absence. Only a handful of these poems had been published at the time of her death in 1886, but in the 20th century her tart and entirely original poetic style was widely appreciated. In Believing Again, Roger Lundeen quotes her extensively in his exploration of the religious crisis of the 19th century. For her, everything came to a point of crisis when she was at the Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. She refused conversion. She could not and would not come forward and claim Christ as her own. And as a result, she never joined the church. She never took communion. And she stopped going to church probably in her earlier mid-20s. But she never stopped pressing the questions. She never stopped seeking. She was so much like Melville in that. From beginning to end, she would not cease struggling with God. About four years before she died, she wrote a letter to the one man she ever seriously considered marrying, at this time, 71-year-old widower. And when she wrote this letter, she was 51. And the particular letter I have in mind here is a very passionate letter, full of playful barbs and hints at romantic love and possibilities of their marrying and what it'll be like. And right in the middle of it, she drops this passage. She says, on matters of beings and belief, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps the believing nimble. <laughs> and there you have it again, that to and froing between belief and unbelief. In a poem written in the same year that she wrote that letter to the 71-year-old widower, Dickinson wrote, those dying then knew where they went. They went to God's right hand. That hand is amputated now when God cannot be found. The abdication of belief makes the behavior small. Better an ignis fatuus than no illum at all. I've always been fascinated by the fact that uh, Dickinson wrote this in North America in 1882 within months of Friedrich Nietzsche's having written in The Gay Science the, the famous passage about the death of God where the madman comes into the village square and says God is dead and we have killed him and we have his blood on our hands. And it just fascinates me that two stunningly creative writers working in total ignorance of each other in a continent away, within months of each other, come up with this image of an amputated God, a, a God cut off from humanity, a God killed by humanity, and of, of blood on the hands. In one case, the amputated hand, the mangled stump of God's arm. God's hand in things we cannot find. And Dickinson had this fear that the loss of God then would lead to a dramatically diminished world. The abdication of belief makes the behavior small. Maybe it's better, as she says, to have a fool's light than no loom at all. So this woman was very much aware of, of how unbelief led to a radically different view of the world than belief did. And yet she herself could not and would not settle on one or the other. She went back and forth as Melville did. Emily Dickinson and Herman Melville, in Roger Lundeen's reading, went back and forth between belief and unbelief, unable to hold on, but no more able to let go of the stern religion in which each was raised. Of her family, Dickinson wrote in a letter, they are religious, except me, an address an eclipse every morning, 
whom they call their father. The expression is interesting because during an eclipse, the sun, let's say, is obscured and overshadowed, but remains present, even while invisible. Both Dickinson and Melville can be read as reaching for a new conception of the divine. A new book even finds intimations of polytheism in Melville. But there is no doubt that both, in their time, were critics and doubters who felt that they had to give up the practice and profession of Christianity. Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky presents rather a different case. Contemporary with Dickinson and Melville, he died in 1881, he's another writer whom Roger Lundeen treats at length in his consideration of the interplay of faith and doubt in 19th century literature. Dostoevsky passionately confessed Christianity, Lundeen says, but always in the face of doubt. Dostoevsky was imprisoned for four years in a labor camp in Siberia for his uh, political and social activities uh, against the Tsar and his regime. And when he returned from that imprisonment, he wrote a letter to a, a woman who had given him a New Testament before he went into prison. And, and he wrote to her a very moving letter in which he said, I will tell you that I'm a child of the century, a child of disbelief and doubt. I am that today, and I know it will remain so until the grave. How much terrible torture this thirst for faith has cost me and cost me even now, which is all the stronger in my soul the more arguments I can find against it. He goes on to tell this woman that he developed a, a creed when he was in the prison camp, and he says it is very simple, quote, to believe that nothing is more beautiful profound, sympathetic, reasonable, manly, and more perfect than Christ. And I tell myself with a jealous love not only that there is nothing, but there cannot be anything. Even more, if someone proved to me that Christ is outside the truth and that in reality the truth were outside of Christ, then I should prefer to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. Dostoevsky sides with Christ. He professes and practices the Christian faith. He writes his great novels out of his Christian conviction. And yet, he remains very much someone who realizes the power and reality of unbelief, even within the life of belief. And a figure like Ivan in the Brothers Karamazov could not have been created by a Christian writer unless that writer understood the deep and persistent possibility of unbelief. Dostoevsky believed, but he understood the force of unbelief. And in his fiction, he gave unbelief its due. He allowed it to make its arguments, even as he affirmed belief and sought to make the word of belief the most convincing word in his fiction. One of Dostoevsky's greatest 20th century interpreters was the Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin. He credits Dostoevsky with having created what Bakhtin calls the polyphonic novel, a novel in which competing voices overlap, each receiving its due, the game never rigged, even though Dostoevsky hoped that his Christianity would, in the end, have the most persuasive voice. This approach reached its zenith, in his final novel, The Brothers Karamazov, in which atheism speaks in the voice of Ivan Karamazov, one of the brothers. Ivan tells his younger brother Alyosha a story, a prose poem in which Christ returns to the Spanish city of Seville in the 16th century at the height of the Inquisition, a Roman Catholic institution which prosecuted, tortured, and burned heretics. The Grand Inquisitor, the church official in charge, has Christ arrested and then pays him a visit in his cell on the night before he is to be killed. The Inquisitor speaks of the gospel scene in which Christ is tempted by Satan, but refuses the tempter's suggestion that he save the world by assuming power over it. You were wrong, the Inquisitor says, and the church has had to rectify your mistake.
The Grand Inquisitor tells Christ that in refusing the temptations of the devil in the wilderness, he failed the human race because the human race wants miracle, mystery, and authority. It wants not the freedom of the heart, which is what Christ offered, but it wants the certainty that comes from having clear lines of authority, secure beliefs, and commands given to it. And he says that the human heart is the free heart is miserable, and it cannot thrive. It must be subjected to an authority greater than itself, and we have perfected your work. We have come to rule over the the lives of men and women with a complete, all-encompassing system in place. They bring us their freedom, and we, in turn, give them their myths that they can live by. We don't believe a word of it, but we know that we have power over them, and we are willing to accept the misery we experience, knowing that everything we teach them about God is untrue, as long as they are willing to give us their freedom, which gives us our great power. And long and short of it is at the end of that prose poem, the Grand Inquisitor decides to let Christ go, but Christ does not say a word to him in response, just kisses him on the cheek, and that's it. Alyosha Karamazov is badly shaken by his brother's portrait of a Christian church which has renounced Christ and completely reversed his teachings. But he is able to make no response, and no formal rejoinder is ever given in the book, a fact which puzzled Roger Lundin as a teenage reader. I remember when I read that novel, I was profoundly disappointed. I said, "What? okay, when's the argument, the counter-argument going to come? <laughs> and, and there isn't a counter-argument to it except a central gesture. And that gesture comes not long after that scene. It comes when Alyosha, the brother who has heard this story from his brother Ivan, throws himself on the earth and he, he puts his arms on the ground and wants to embrace the earth and he kisses the earth and waters it with his tears. And that's the affirmation of love and acceptance and the affirmation of the creation and the goodness of life that is Dostoevsky's response to Ivan, Alyosha's response to Ivan. But to an 18-year-old reading that novel, Ivan won the day. And I really realized years later when I read Bakhtin that, yes, Dostoevsky took that risk. He presented the, the opposing viewpoints with such power and eloquence that unbelief was a very real possibility. In an unusual way, he let the things he did not believe and the things he wanted to believe were false. He let them have their day and speak their word. Dostoevsky, in confessing that his faith was always shadowed by doubt and disbelief, said that this made him a child of the century. Dickinson and Melville shared the sense of having been dispossessed, of hearing what English poet Matthew Arnold called the melancholy, long-withdrawing roar of a once-enfolding sea of faith. Dickinson, in a terrible poem that begins, I dreaded that first robin so, asks the creatures and flowers of spring to keep away from her because their beauty so painfully increases her sense of homelessness in nature. I dared not meet the daffodils, she writes, for fear their yellow gown would pierce me with a fashion so foreign to my own. And of the bees, she says plaintively, what word had they for me? The 19th century had not begun this way. Romantic poetry and philosophy had stressed the bond between humanity and nature and the opening of the human imagination into the divine. The world of the imagination is the world of eternity, the English poet William Blake says. It is the divine bosom into which we all shall go after the death of the vegetated body. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson portrays nature as the complement of the soul, answering it part for part. Every natural fact is a symbol of some spiritual fact, he writes. Every appearance in nature corresponds to some state of mind. 
But this confidence, Roger Lundin says, would not last. In the early 19th century, writers such as Wordsworth and Coleridge placed a great faith in what they, they spoke of as the possible union of the human spirit in the natural world. And Wordsworth offered a, a stirring image of, of what this would be. He went through a, a long list of the myths that had informed Eastern and Western religion. He said, why should we be worried about these myths and these fictions from the past? He said, for the discerning intellect of man, when wedded to this goodly universe, in love and holy passion, shall find these a simple produce of the common day. The beautiful image of, of paradise being the simple produce of a common day, when the spirit of the human world and the divine world in the human world is wedded to nature. You can find this throughout uh, Coleridge as well. A number of other writers, both German and, and English, it comes into early American Romanticism in a figure like Emerson. But what happens to the hopefulness of Romanticism in the 19th century is that the faith in the productivity and spiritual significance of the partner, one partner in the union, i.e. nature, begins to, shall we say, decline. <laughs> so many different things happen to make the idea of a spiritualized nature seem less and less probable. Some of these had to do with you know, the, the increasing underlying mechanistic and technological bent of the age. It's the age of great discovery of the railroad, of massive in, you know, industrialization and urbanization. And a lot had to do with the appearance of Darwin and, and Darwin's theory of natural selection. By the late 1800s, it had become almost impossible to believe in a spiritualized nature. I'm going to read just a short passage from Friedrich Nietzsche's Twilight of the Idols, which was written in the late 1880s. Nietzsche says, Nature, artistically considered, is no model. It exaggerates. It distorts. It leaves gaps. Nature is chance. For art to exist, for any sort of aesthetic activity or perception to exist, a certain psychological precondition is indispensable intoxication. The essence of intoxication is the feeling of plenitude and increased energy. From out of the feeling one gives to things, one compels them to take, one rapes them. So one could say that the 19th century is a story of a journey from romance to rapacity. And that feeling of being isolated from nature and finding nature indifferent or blank and, and senseless it, it's there in Melville. Captain Ahab has a speech where he says all visible objects are but as pasteboard masks. And he says he would strike through the mask. He said, nature is a prison. I would strike through the prison wall. Again, the image of violence there in Moby Dick in mid-century. By the end of the 19th century, you can find these images throughout literature, the sense that nature is, is not a fit partner for human passion and the human spirit but nature is a, a blank otherness. Surveying the literature of the 19th century, Roger Lundeen sees a long harrowing by doubt and disillusion. This disillusionment was particularly keen for writers who grew up in milieu that were still saturated by the language and symbolism of Protestant Christianity and the King James Bible and there is a sense in which they remained captives of the pattern of authoritarian belief from which they were trying to break free. The 20th century presents a more variegated picture. Writers who, in effect, began in disillusionment were able to find their way back to a less grandiose faith. One was English poet W. H. Auden, from whom Roger Lundeen borrows the title of his book, Believing Again. Auden, at the age of 33, resumed the practice of a religion he had renounced when he was 13. He returned to the practices and the professions of the Anglican Church. He remained a communicant member of the Anglican Church until his death. And he submitted in some way to the authority of 
of the Christian church and the Christian faith. He has a wonderful poem called Precious Five, in which he deals with all of his five senses and what, what they do and, and what their powers are. But the poem ends with him speaking. And he says something like this. I'm doing this from memory. He could, he could stand and roar at the skies and, and demand to know what is going on. But he said all that would come back to him would be that singular command. Bless what there is for being. For what else am I made for? Agreeing or disagreeing. Or in another poem written shortly before his return to the Anglican faith of his childhood, great poem that begins as I walked out one evening walking down Bristol Street. The crowds upon the pavement were fields of harvest wheat. In that poem, at a, at a key moment right near the end, he says, life remains a blessing although you cannot bless. You shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. You can get in both of those passages I quoted the sense of obedience to a command, a sense that right living and right thinking begin with responding to the fundamental command of life, which is bless what there is for being and love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. He connects those, when he returns to the Anglican Church, to the Christian faith, but he doesn't do so in a way that becomes elaborated then as a vast structure of authoritarian command. But there is that strong sense of belief as a response to a demand, and a command and a demand placed upon the self. Other writers who returned to Christianity, like T.S. Eliot, came closer to embracing what Roger Lundeen here calls a vast structure of authoritarian command. But Auden, in his believing again, adopted a more humble and tentative stance. He felt that people have no choice, finally, but, as he says, to agree or disagree, praise or curse. But he also writes, we have no means of learning what is really going on. And so he commends a faith, as he puts it, well-balanced by doubt. Not knowing what is really going on is, in a sense, the modern situation, the result of having outgrown childish certainty. One of the thinkers who Roger Lundin credits with helping him to understand this situation is the German Protestant pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Imprisoned and murdered by the Nazis in the last years of the Second World War, Bonhoeffer wrote from prison a series of letters in which he speculated about a future for Christian faith after what he saw as the imminent fading away of religion. These letters were published after the war under the title Letters and Papers from Prison. In them, he speaks of man come of age, of a humanity that has broken its mythological bindings and emerged into the clear light of a free and autonomous existence. Christians, he says, should embrace this freedom and not pine for a romanticized past, an idea Roger Lundin found crucial. Bonhoeffer has been central to my, my own thinking, and there's no way that I could have developed my arguments in this book in my own life without letters and papers from prison being at the center of my thinking because I read that book when I was 20. And it was the book I read that convinced me that I as a Christian should not be sentimental about wanting to go back to the good old days when everything was clear, pure, and simple. Bonhoeffer very clearly says that it's pointless, ignoble, and unchristian to try to force the modern world back into a medieval mind set, to make us repeal history and give up that freedom that God has allowed us to develop in the history over which God is sovereign. Bonhoeffer's point is God is sovereign over history, and history, our history is one in which we have in, grown increasingly aware of our autonomy in many matters. He says, we cannot and should not try to force people back into a theonomous situation, to put them back into a situation in which they would be, they would be ruled socially and intellectually by uh, prohibitive, powerfully enforced 
theological commands and dictates and, and, and social structures and laws that would make those commands and dictates mirror the commands and, and dictates of the religious system. He was very strong on that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's insistence that the modern world has come of age is a position that Roger Lundin has also embraced. What has been done, he says, cannot be undone. Disillusionment, choice, the terrors of a history without providential design, these are a fate we cannot escape by naive faith. We may achieve what Paul Ricoeur calls a second naivete, but never again the first. Lundin, in this respect, resembles Charles Taylor, who has always insisted that modernity, with its choices and contradictions, is our inescapable destiny. We may believe again, Roger Lundin says finally, but we will always know that we have made a choice in the face of other possibilities. I think our situation is quite similar to those situations we looked at in the 19th century insofar as modernity seems increasingly to mean the presence in our lives of competing systems of value, competing claims to religious and political authority, and competing claims concerning the nature and character of God and the meaning of the great questions about eternal life, forgiveness, judgment, the problem of evil. I think we're a lot like those 19th century characters we've talked about. And I think that's a part of what it means to live in late modernity. Charles Taylor's written, what, 700-page book, probably the best thing I've ever read on how we got to this point. But even Taylor's book could and should be supplemented by other long books exploring these questions. There's no single explanation of how we've gotten to this point. But I do believe we are in a situation that the 19th century helps us to understand very, very keenly. And I do not believe that that situation will be undone. I do not believe we are going to go back. As we go forward, we can do so individually and perhaps corporately as people who renew and find great resources from the past and renew faith in very meaningful ways. But we cannot go back collectively, individually, culturally to a situation before the possibilities of modernity opened themselves up to us. On Ideas, you've listened to the final episode of our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Our guest was literary scholar Roger Lundin, the author of Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in a Secular Age. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Liz Nage is our webmaster. For information on upcoming Ideas programs, visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter or link to the podcast of today's show. You can also join us on Facebook. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.